Hey ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Molecule to Market, where you go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. Today, I was joined by Atta Tuna Siflek, CEO at Luna4. Not the easiest name to say, but what a terrific guest he was. But that probably says more about me than the wonderful Atta who joined me today. He is a really fascinating individual that started a company that was spun out of a university, uh, a PhD project that ultimately led to the birth of his business, uh, Lunafor, where he, he is a co-founder. The conversation today covers lots of interesting areas um, from his kind of next generation sequencing tool technology, which is helping bring a satellite for tumors for immuno-oncology and cancer research from discovery to eventually the mainstream. He talks around uh, some of the subjects, uh, some of the ideas around life science startups and how some of them don't survive because they just don't have the data and science to kind of give them that backbone. And he talks about some of his lessons of entrepreneurship and leadership from kind of theory of reading about them into the reality of running his business for over eight years alongside his co-founders. He also talks about the avalanche effect, which I thought was really interesting, uh, where he's gone from you know, two and a half thousand competition fundraised to over $60 million in financing in a market that they operate that is valued at billions of dollars and is, is, is estimated to be worth a lot more in the future. For background, Attar was born in Turkey and received a double BSc in maths and electronic engineering. He also started his interdisciplinary research um, on microfluids and biology during his time there, where he received a thesis of the year award in 2009. He also went on to get an interdisciplinary PhD in biomedical microfluid systems and was awarded an internationally known Dimitris Foundation Prize in the category of cutting edge technology. After inventing its core technology during his PhD, he co-founded Luna4, and so far, as I mentioned, it's received uh, $60 million in financing, both from private and public sources, leading to multiple innovation projects in Switzerland and Europe. There are nearly 100 people there, and he's appeared more than 100 times in national and international media channels, claimed 22 awards, and has consistently been selected as one of the best startups in Switzerland. He's married, has two kids, and is an outdoors guy, and it's just an all-round nice guy. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you do, please give us a five-star rating on the App Store. And if you've got any ideas of how we can make the podcast even better, or any guests that you'd like us to interview, then please get in touch. Enjoy today's episode. Hey Atta, welcome to Molecule to Market. Hi Roman, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um, great to great to have you on the show. And Atta, let's start with the start. Tell us a bit about your background, how you ended up kind of in the sector, and ultimately ended up as as CEO at Luna Four. Give us the kind of backstory. Yeah, well, that's a sort of interesting story. So I studied electrical engineering. And I was also fascinated by science, so I did a double measure uh, with mathematics uh, during my bachelor's, which uh, then the day that I finished both of them, 
I sort of decided that I don't want to do both of this. And <laughs> it's an interesting story, but then biology and life sciences started to attract me much more than what I studied. So I jumped on an interdisciplinary PhD uh, here at uh, Swiss Institute of Technology uh, in Lausanne, where I studied or did my PhD between microsystems and pathology. And this is a bit uh, where the technology, the core technology of Luna 4 has been invented. And following that, uh, back in 2014, we founded Luna 4 with two other co-founders. And then, you know, it's been almost eight years of a great ride where we are now approaching 200 people. Fantastic. And what, what was it about biology that interested you? You you mentioned obviously you decided that you know something obviously was calling to you. What was it specifically that just took you down that that road? Yeah, I mean, at one part it is it stays as a mystery. You know, there there is so much to be explored in biology or life sciences, and on the other side of the spectrum, the impact, uh, like social, economic, like all kinds of impact. Uh, seems to be much higher than engineering. I mean, of course, this is debatable, but that was, to my taste, uh, how, how it was. And the third part is because I get a very different education and, um, you know, applying those approaches to biology, I've seen a lot of opportunity because the way of thinking in engineering, in electrical engineering or mathematics, it's it's quite different than you know, for the way of thinking in biology. And if you're trained in one and then later you learn how to do the other, then this interdisciplinary approach can bring uh, to surface a lot of uh, discoveries. And this is how it really it went on during my PhD. I did a really great PhD with many inventions and papers. And looking back at the essence of it, I was uh, really applying certain notions that are very clear for engineers uh, to the to, to biology. Mm-hmm. That's great. And Talk us through the startup story then with your co-founders. Like, how did the idea of Luna 4 come about? And in prior to answering that, give us or give our listener a bit of an overview. You know, if you met someone at an event tomorrow and they said, hey, what what do you do? What does Luna 4 do? Talk us through how you describe the company. At Luna 4, we basically provide tools for immuno-oncology and cancer research. Uh, which allows them to have a, you know, which, which allows researchers, uh, be it a, it's a clinical research or translate or discovery research, to much better interact with tumors and collect data from them. And uh, the approach that we're applying is called spatial biology, and it actually takes all the statistical approaches, like um, like genomics, for example, it is a purely statistical understanding of a piece of uh, sample that is from, from the patient or proteomic. We take that and we put into a map. So it is like looking from a satellite to a satellite image to understand how the tumors are working and interconnected and how they develop. And this gives tremendous amount of information to people who are conducting the research on what the next steps could be, how you know different cells are interacting each other, how cancer cells are evading the immune response, and so on. And this is what we do. We really provide those tools to the people uh, because that, in the essence, you know, a research or an outcome is as good as the tools can provide them for. That's fantastic to hear, and I love what you said there about kind of giving them a satellite of tumors. So I suppose sticking with that theme, do they? 
does your technology and your tools effectively give the uh, you know practitioner or physician a bit of an overview of what's going on with the tumor and I suppose potential routes for treatment and potential routes for how it might develop and how it might progress? Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, if you look at from a sort of image, let's say it is very similar to a satellite image where we can do for, see, for example, how where the immune cells are located, where the cancer cells are located, where the other biological structures are located in a tumor and how they're interacting with each other. And we can also see if there are heterogeneities. Like uh, one part of the tumor may not be uh, similar to the other part of the tumor. Sometimes you might have two different cancers, literally, uh, in a single tumor. So all of those uh, gives us understanding. Um, for the moment, it is more for discovery research and translational research. But in a short amount of time, I would say like five to seven year time frame, I think it's going to be more and more uh, getting closer to the patient. Amazing. That would be, uh, I mean, just, you know, objectively, it, it sounds like an incredible technology that would that would have usage in a clinic environment as much as a discovery environment, which is which is very exciting. And what, I suppose, you know, going back to one of my previous questions, how did how did it all come about? You know, you, you mentioned, obviously, some co-founders in yourself that started Lunafall. You know, was it... Was it an idea over a beer? Was it a passion that you had? Was it an opportunity? And, you know, is it because the existing technology in this area is not great? It'd be great to get that kind of uh, that backstory. I mean, it didn't come together in a single day. So looking back, it is more over time uh, we digest the information and then, you know, then the idea and the path going forward becomes more more clear over time. So for dating back 2012, uh, this is where I filed the first patents uh, out of my PhD uh, at the time. And once a patent is filed, then this question mark, okay, could this be something that can, you know, that can have an impact going forward for, uh, for, the, uh, for the community in general? And can we make a business out of that? And uh, then I had another colleague uh, who are doing who was doing PhD here within the same department. And we knew each other for two years or so. And then I was following just entrepreneurship courses to get a little bit more understanding, you know, how the life, life looks like while I continue my PhD. And, um, and uh, with this colleague, and now my co-founder, Diego, well, we get more and more closer. He actually, you know, switches uh, projects uh, to the same project that I'm working on. And we work together like one, one and a half year. And over the time, this idea basically grew in us uh, and at, to the point that at one point we said, yes, we want to launch this, uh, this company. Um, and then we were looking for a third co-founder because um, another observation that we did, many technical co-founders, uh, basically one chooses to be a sort of business partner, like the CEO, founding CEO, the other chooses to be the CTO because it is very high tech uh, business. Of course, we need uh, technical understanding and uh, rigor, uh, I'll say technical understanding and the experience for that. But usually a typical startup would miss a third founding uh, foundational leg, uh, which is uh, somebody who would be in touch with customers, uh, somebody who would be sort of uh, facing the customers on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, who somebody whose job is that, not like uh, we are doing part-time because a life science CEO spends a lot of time on fundraising 
and with the investors and putting the, the strategy together. So we started looking for a third co-founder. And again, it's uh, when we first met with her, it didn't really just happen in a day, but we have an opportunity to work together like six to six months to almost a year. Uh, I would say yeah, where she was just, um, you know, involved in our pro- process for a while. But at the end of this year, we were all convinced that uh, she's the correct person uh, to start the company with. And uh, so for this process took us like one and a half years. Um, and at the end of that one and a half years, we decided to fund, found the company. And uh, back in 2014, we founded the company together and licensed the technology from the university. Uh, that is more or less the year after I finished my PhD. Let me ask a question. How typical is a story of a PhD project that ends up being a business? Is that a is that a very kind of well-trodden path or is that something that's quite a rarity from academia to, to business? Um, I mean, we are not unique on that sense. Uh, I have uh, a few, uh, you know, there are a few startups, like three, four startups within the same departments who started before uh, before us, before Luna 4, where I have seen how they grow. So this is not really unique. But if you look at from a sort of percentage perspective, there are like thousands of PhD students in this institute. Maybe 10, 10 15 startups come, up to, uh, come out to the light every year. So at one point it is rare, but it's not unique. And I think this is the way it should be, especially in the deep tech space, because we need publications to convince investors. We need publications to convince uh, customers. I mean, our customers are uh, really highly educated. They at least have a PhD if it is not an MD or a specialist or a professor. So to be able to convince this audience, actually the product is very scientific and we have to come up with data. And, you know, the history showed uh, many life science startups or a few life science startups who started just with an idea without any proof of technology or publications uh, who raised a lot of money and then failed very badly. So I do think that, uh, you know, especially in this field, uh, it has to be really driven by data and science, solid science behind with multiple publications, uh, because this is what we base ourselves on. And then this is what we scale. We create a system out of this scientific discovery that we made rather than an idea that then turns into a sort of technology, which happens in, I don't know, in a software space a lot. Uh, which I uh, I think it's a, it's a good way to go there. But from a life science perspective, uh, I do think the correct path is the other way around. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. You mentioned there, obviously, you have to convince some of these very smart scientists in terms of, I suppose, using your technology what what exists at the minute in terms of what you know prior to luna 4 what existed in terms of supporting discovery scientists in this area and tell us about what what makes your kind of platform different and and better than the existing kind of incumbent tools that are available so, uh, I mean, when we started, we are really one of the pioneers uh, in, in this field. So when we started 
not too much existed. But there was also the question mark, This is this something really useful in a mainstream way um, in life science in general? This is very similar to, I always use the analogy with the next generation sequencing. You know, before next generation sequencing, people doing, people were sequencing existed. But it was very manual, you know, low multiplicity, only a few specialist labs uh, will be able to do that. So it, it was really contained in a high-tech environment within labs. People were just running it for their own discovery research, or maybe a little bit more than that. Um, but there was no technology that can bring this in a way that everyone can do sequencing, or every lab in the world can do sequencing, because very know-how intensive and manual and depends on internal processes that has to be done. And what we are doing is a bit uh, also uh, very similar to this. Uh, we are, I mean, spatial biology is doing an, in a much more mainstream way, highly multiplex analysis on the tumor sections. And traditionally, it was people were looking at one parameter at a time, two parameter at a time, which is the standard anatomical pathology today. And there was a lot of question mark if this is really something useful, if we make it. Uh, so the one of the first challenges is uh, to make people understand that indeed, you know, if we can bring this niche into a mainstream tool that can break the ground and that can bring them a lot. But with early stage the discovery researchers, this is usually easy a job to do. It is more the later stage researchers. Um, that was one of the challenges. Now, of course, over the time. This market started to grow very fast. I mean, we were talking about below for two billion markets uh, today, maybe around four billion, and now uh, the estimations show that five to seven year time frame. This is going to go past ten billion barrier. So that means uh, a lot of uh, other technologies and products started to come into uh, come into the game because there's a great need. People don't think anymore anymore about shall we really do this? Do we need this going forward? It is more okay. We need this going forward, but which is the best way that we can implement this? And uh, interestingly, over all those years, our position didn't change because what we really do differently, uh, you know, typically in Life science innovations, especially in life science tools and diagnostic space that we are in, people would think that a solution is always a sort of reagent solution. Uh, to to um, It always has to come through some reagents that helps us to detect uh, all those proteins or genes, and then that helps us to make a good readout out of these uh, proteins or genes. And uh, now looking at the space, there are you know, many different solutions, but all of them are basically bringing a different kind of reagent um, that can detect uh, those proteins or that can you know, detect the genes and then a different kind of way to read them out so that we can increase the multiplicity. We can do 10, 20, 100, 1,000 readouts at a time. So what we uh, at the time thought is... Um, Actually, this infrastructure is there. There is uh, all the, the um, you know, all the antibodies, or all the proteomic spaces, there, all the genomic spaces there, and all those reagents that can detect the proteins and uh, the genes are already there. Can we invent a technology that can change the way those reagents react with the samples and then deliver those results? Because if we can do that, uh, that can bring 
us a lot of advantage. First, we tap into a sort of library uh, of uh, proteomics and genomics, like antibodies and probes that has been developed over the last 20 years. The second is that almost every researcher in our space has some way of uh, interacting with them. They know how to use it. They did their own manual kits, uh, sorry, manual uh, assays. Uh, they are you know, using some other solution that uses the same reagents. Can we take those and then you know, turn this into special biology so that we can make this mainstream? Like every, every lab in the world who owns our solution will be able to just use it in a matter of days. And this is what puts us apart. Instead of building this uh, from scratch, uh, from a sort of, um, and then bring a completely closed solution to the customers, we are bringing them a tool that turns what they know into something much more powerful. It's incredible. And it, it's fascinating what you're saying about the market growth at the start there as well. And, you know, right place, right time for your tools and technology. And, you know, I, we, I think we'd all expect your business to continue to grow and, uh, you know, and, and help in this marketplace in the next decade or so. And I noticed um, in my research that you guys had raised a significant amount of funds. I don't know how good my maths is, but, uh, or my currency exchanges, but about 50 to 60 uh, million US dollars in, in terms of funding and seed funding in the last few years, which is an incredible achievement. So talk us through that experience because you're a, you're a, I suppose, a scientist and a engineer by trade, and you've had to learn. I would note down that you were learning about entrepreneurship. So I'm, I'm curious to hear how that experience of fundraising and, I suppose, selling your business to investors has has evolved over the over the years. Well, it is um, it is an experience. I do agree with, them, <laughs> with you. Um, so uh, it it has evolved a lot, but um, you know everything with. Uh, I mean, one of the things I learned everything with business. It's a sort of avalanche effect. It is all about starting targeting, having a very great vision going forward, and then taking one step at a time with uh, increasing volumes. So the first money that we raised was out of a competition which was two and a half k. Right, so we we attended yeah. the competition. It's a two and a half k, which we were really happy. But then the next one we raised was ten k, and then uh, we get uh, collected additional like grants while we still didn't incorporate Luna Four. We collected around a million, and we put that money into the work and we show the executions. Then when we go to the investors, our first seed investors, they could see okay, these guys are not just talking. But they raised like 700, 800K just by themselves, non-dilutive funding, and they use this money to improve uh, this technology from here to here. Now they come to me. And then we ask, at the time, our first seed financing was 2 million, um, which then is a sort of, they can project, they, they are okay with that because they have seen how good it is with the, that little money we brought Maybe if I, if I give them 2 million more, then it is going, let's see where they're going to come. So we take this 2 million and our next financing was uh, 10 million, 15 million, and the other one was 25 million. So it, it is all about creating this avalanche effect of uh, raising the money in small increments, but then really delivering very good results 
delivering the targets and feeling the promise uh, about where we are going to go with that. And more we do it, more we will be able to raise going forward. That's incredible. I, I love that phrase, the avalanche effect. I've not come across it. I, I, I use similar analogy around you know entrepreneurs you know starting a business is like you know a snowball coming down a hill and, that, <laughs> okay. and, and you know when it when it gets you know you, you've got to be ready when it really catches fire and, and momentum which it sounds like your your business is and how how do you how do you think about entrepreneurship now versus when you started because I'm, I'm interested you know you obviously are a studious person in terms of you you probably read a lot about entrepreneurship and mm-hmm. what it means to start your own business. But I'm, I'm interested to know, you know, looking back eight years on, how do you think about entrepreneurship now versus maybe when you, when you first started, is it the same or is it different? Uh, yeah. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Well, it is quite different. I mean, it's um, first, maybe I put, I should put this into context. We started with three co-founders. And uh, after we raised our first money, we were a team of 15, 20 people. After we raised our second money, we were a team of 30, 40 people. And now there are like phases like this. Now we are about uh, getting close to 100 people. And I can tell you this, all of those phases, it is a completely different company to be managed. And that means for the founders, very different way of interacting with people, uh, with our teammates. So, for, and then needs at the time, I mean, we are three people, but let's say out of 10 people. So we are part of the team that we have to really execute in detail. So we had to work a lot. And at the time, for me, entrepreneurship is just working a lot to be delivered as soon as possible, like short-term deliverables, so that we can make ourselves credible uh, to the outsiders. Uh, I mean, outsiders, I mean, investors, other uh, investors, other companies, and customers. Now, it is a completely different game because, uh, well, if I work like three times more than I do right now uh, in a sort of large company like this, I would say large, it's not still a large company, but let's say in, in the order of 100 people, that is not going to move the needle. So what really moves the needle is how we can, how well we can align our team around a single goal so that they don't pull into different directions. And the second is that they do understand what is, a, uh, what is our vision and they are also uh, sort of representatives of the company values that we have. If we have all of these together, then it's all about trusting our colleagues how to uh, that they they will be able to deliver uh, the results. And what we do is is to create this environment, listen to them, uh, understand what their problems are that they cannot solve uh, by themselves, but we have a great power that we can solve this, and uh, and then just make sure that everything is going towards the vision. Uh, that uh, we all want to uh, achieve in the long term. So it, it is really very different uh, because it's a different company, different needs, uh, and especially from a p- perspective of entrepreneur, it changes a lot. Uh, it's the communication, interaction with the colleagues, and the outside world is is quite different. No, and I, I have to. I mean, I absolutely echo exactly what you said there in terms of the need to have solid values and a clear vision and how things change when there are more bodies and how complicated communication 
gets, you know, <laughs> when there's just three of you versus a hundred, that's a very, very different kind of dynamic to try and to try and navigate. And so I'm interested to know, you, you said at, at the start, you actually just a few moments ago, you talked about the, the potential of the market that you're in and the kind of growth that is anticipated. Is that driven primarily by drug research and obviously the, the huge oncology part of the market? Is that primarily what's driving growth or, or is there something else that sits within that drives that market growth? Um, yes. So the primary driver of this market was immuno-oncology mm-hmm. because, I mean, immuno-oncology, as the name suggests, we have to not only understand the oncology, the cancer itself, but also the immune uh, system itself and how they interact uh, with each other. So the spatial biology, the core need has been created by immuno-oncology. And if you look at the pipeline assets uh, in immuno-oncology, the number is huge. I, I don't even remember anymore because every year it changes. And uh, maybe immuno-oncology is 10, 15 year journey the, from the first times we started to hear this, um, this word in a sort of widespread way which means those pipeline assets are getting later and later into the stage. Of course, um, as they get later into the stage, the numbers increase, but then the need or the, you know, the scale of the studies are also increasing a lot. And at one point, if and when it hits to the, the uh, clinic, uh, hits to the clinic, then again, the scale also again multiplies by 10. So this is, let's say, the primary driver of this. But then what happened over the time is uh, also, especially with COVID, people have seen like immuno-oncology and immunology is not so different. I mean, we have mRNA vaccines, which actually indeed started for immuno-oncology and then applied for immunology. So we started to get some traction from immunology as well. Then um, the, the similar ideas started to be borrowed by you know, other aspects of uh, either research or the clinical, uh, preclinical development. And we are seeing now special being used also in neuropathology and in similar cases. So it, again, they, I'm going to beat the same drum talking about uh, next generation sequencing, but it also started uh, there, started with like understanding the oncology. And then later, once you have a great tool like this, then everyone borrows the idea and say, hey, can we use this uh, to in our own research as well? And can we apply this to our own um, preclinical or cl- clinical research going forward? Incredible. It's a, it's a fascinating area and it's one that I don't know hugely well. So I'm, I'm kind of listening with great intent and to kind of learn about this as well. What, I suppose, what's the vision for the business you know because i suppose the potential in the market at you know that luna 4 operating is is huge but do you have if you're willing to share you know what does what does the 10-year vision look like for your business in terms of not only patient impact but you know the size of the business in, in you know the markets that you operate in it'd be great to get your kind of insight onto that I mean, 10 years in a very rapidly changing um, field like this, but 10 years is going to be quite a speculation, <laughs> but I will try to do my best. All right. So um, I, for us, because what we focus on and DNA of Luna 4 is what we are telling to the customer is that from this point on, now everyone understood that this can be done, spatial biology can be done, and it is relevant. Uh, from this moment on, it is not 
what we can do, but it is how we are be able to do that so that we can bring this niche into the mainstream. And that is really how we can bring this eventually to the patients. And this is what we are working working on. Because we basically decrease the technical barriers, know-how barriers, uh, workflow barriers, usability barriers in front of the customer to be able to adapt this technology and you know put a box into their in, in their lab and start using in two, three days instead of waiting months to be able to start using that. So this is the vision that we are in. Uh, I think step by step now, this has to be used more by uh, translational research. The CROs are starting to adapt that. And going forward, uh, once we are, once a number of uh, clinical studies start incorporating spatial biology, then it goes into probably into clinic first as an LDT and eventually as an IVD. It's this, I, I can say more or less what is the 10 year time frame for this uh, for this technology and this is where we are going so if this happens probably we are talking about uh, 20 to 25 billion markets um, this is what we can estimate from now because mostly today the market estimations are on the research markets including clinical research that we are talking about around 15 billion but the moment it goes into clinic then suddenly those uh, those get multiplied. Uh, but then again, it's all about going to be how we will be able to do that. You know, how we will make it easy enough uh, and with the correct costs in a way that the healthcare system can afford this. The doctors are willing to use that. The labs are willing to buy and install this um, so that it can, you know, uh, benefit the patient eventually. It is still, uh, let's say, minimum five years journey. But we have to get there. And this is, let's say, the mission of Luna 4. Just make it um, you know, usable enough so that everyone can use it. And I think we borrowed this from a little bit from like Apple approach, because it's not like when Apple started, computers were not there. But what they did is made it so usable. Uh, so they, they have great customer service. They it's so reliable so that today you don't need to be a you know software expert or a computer expert to use it. You just buy and use it. Um, and that is what expanded that market. And that is what made computer a part of our everyday lives. So this is a bit what we try to do at Luna 4. Yeah, it's a terrific um, adjacent kind of industry analogy to think about in terms of bringing what seemed like futuristic technology to market in a in a a usable, accessible way. And I think particularly in the global healthcare sector, access to the best technology in healthcare is a huge issue uh, at the minute. And I think if you can bring your technology to market to not only benefit discovery, but also clinicians and ultimately patients, that would be that would be absolutely incredible. And normally I ask my guests about trends and what's happening on the in the industry, but you you've covered that really well in our conversation. <laughs> my final question is probably I'm interested more about you as a leader in terms of how how your leadership skills have had to evolve as your business has grown. Has I presume you've you have tr- I suppose transitioned from scientist to entrepreneur and CEO, and 
what what lessons you've had to learn on the way, what mistakes you've made, anything around that in terms of leadership would be would be great for our listener to kind of get a get a take. I'm as I'm as much interested in the mistakes that you've made <laughs> as the learnings because <laughs> we all do make those mistakes. And um, yeah, anything anything on that subject would be a great way to to kind of round up the conversation. Sure, I mean, um, oh, we did mistakes. <laughs> Uh, I can talk about that hours, but then, you know, sometimes going back, it is difficult to say if I was at that moment, at that time, again, even if everything I know, will I do the same or not? That's also a question mark. But uh, let's start with the very obvious ones. As in, when you start as an entrepreneur in a small team, also coming from a little bit science background, uh, you are quite detail oriented and to a certain extent control oriented. You want to check everything. You want to correct everything. Every little document that is created and submitted to, to, to the investors, for example, I was really spending a lot of time to go over that to make sure that there are no you know, issues and so on and so on. So at one point, um, as an entrepreneur, you do understand that, oh my God, this company is like five to 10 people today. I'm talking about like eight years ago. And at one point, probably it's going to be maybe 200, 300 people. So there is no way that I can scale this way of working up, right? So the first thing an entrepreneur, a successful entrepreneur learns and on space early enough is delegate delegate you know delegate everything that you can to the extent today people are chasing me uh to hey i really need your input for this otherwise i cannot go on so and that is much more um healthy way of uh, really looking at how we should uh, approach the entrepreneurship and the, the balance between entrepreneurship and leadership and management let's say so this is uh, one of the big learnings I did. The second is um, I was not bold enough. Again, going back, I can also speak a, a bit general. We were not bold enough. I mean, we have seen this market is going to be there. It is coming. Um, and, you know, this kind of market explosions happens like almost nothing, nothing or silent, silent. And then there's a point in time it really quickly scales up. And it's all about being ready when that market scales up like it skyrockets and we are there and we are the solution to you know provide to the customer. And but because you're like five, six years in ahead when you start and you have to be in a life science company because the development cycles are long, um, it looks when you speak with investors, when you speak with outsiders, it looks like you're just making it up or speculating too much. And that decreases your uh, sort of uh, appetite to be really bold. And I did fell into that trap. I sort of scaled down in the early days of Tuna for the business plan uh, to have more, you know, less products, uh, you know, targeting more niche markets at the time and so on. And that was a big mistake. Now going back, I should be like insisting until I find the correct people to support me uh, because if I did that, probably I would be like two, three, three years ahead uh, what we are Luna for today. Yeah, I, I love the, I mean, the, the, I mean, I I was nodding away. I mean, the delegation one, I, <laughs> I, could, I, I, I think I've, I've written an entire chapter in my book around that. It's exact point that I think entrepreneurs and leaders, that's an area that you have to get a hold of quickly and trust other people. But 
also that the boldness and you know there's that phrase which you know you know very kind of common phrase which you know reach for the moon and and you might land amongst the stars i think it is which is you know very much around that if you don't think big you you won't get there or you won't get you know the direction that you're traveling and so i think that boldness is a really it's it's one that i particularly see with um kind of academic startups it's almost like a whereas you don't often see it with more traditional entrepreneurs who come in with all yeah. kind of guns blazing but honestly some really brilliant leadership lessons there for our listener i hope our listener is uh jotting some notes down because whether you're an entrepreneur and a ceo you know like atta or if you are just in a in a leadership team or a you know, a, a mid-management role, those lessons are equally as as important in my opinion. So no, fantastic. And I can't believe we're almost, we're up at time already. And what a, what a wonderful conversation at, a, and what, you know, congratulations on Luna Force continued success and the lessons that you've learned. And I think on behalf of all our listeners, we, we hope to see your technology and your, you know, I love, you know, I wrote down your satellite for tumors, next generation tools, you know, filtering their way, not just through discovery, but ultimately to uh, clinicians and ultimately to patients in an accessible way. That would be an amazing thing for, for all of us. So thank you for taking the time to, to be a guest on, on Molecule to Market. It was a real pleasure. Again, thanks for having me. Thank you. Hi again, thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com, and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we will see you again next week. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.